from that. Okay, Second Peter 2. We're going through the little section 4 through 9. And like this morning, it's not a pretty section. It uh, is just expressing the uh, condemnation that God brings upon uh, evil men. And other things we're going to point out here tonight. So I'm going to just read there, starting with verse 4 and ending with verse 9. And uh, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Wow, this is really a heavy passage when you start walking through the examples. Just a a step back, just for a second here. The key to the book of 2 Peter is in chapter 1, verse 3. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. When you live in an ungodly world, you've got to say, well, what's going to feed me? You're not going to get it from the world, are you? We know that, too. I mean, do you ever feel encouraged after watching anything on the news anymore? Come away feeling edified? I don't think we do. It's just an ongoing assault on godly people in our day and age. And yet God says, I've given you everything for life and godliness. So we can't stop and say, I can't do it. Right? Well, have I started the application already? No. We're just showing out the main points. Uh, and that is through the true knowledge of him who caught us by his own glory and excellence. In verse number 4, just right into the phrase, in order that you might became, become partakers of the divine nature, watch this, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. That's an amazing statement, but that is important in light of chapter 2. We're going to see examples that God knows how to get us out from under that kind of ungodliness. And we'll see that especially here tonight. But then uh, these are the things that Peter says. I've got to remind you of these all the time because it's easy, as verse 9 in chapter 1 would say, for us to become blind or short-sighted or forget our purifications from our former sins. It's easy in the, in the Greek sense, and I told you about these, it's easy to end up in a smoke-filled room caught up with remembering foreign sins or former sins and and you just they're already forgiven they're already forgotten as far as the lord's concerned but it wraps us up and ties us down because you're in an ungodly world 
And it's easy to look in the mirror and say, you know, I'm not much different. And that gets kind of frightening. And, and it's just so heavy a topic. And yet when we get into chapter 2, verse 9, I love the refreshment of the words. And the Lord knows how. <laughs> That's a great place to come back to. The Lord knows how. He knows where you live, by the way. And he knows this world we're in. And so, as we go into chapter number 2 and look at how the Lord knows, or what the Lord knows, uh, he's dealing with false teachers. And the fact that many, according to verse number 2 of chapter 2, many will follow them in sensuality, the way of truth is maligned, they will be greedy and and exploit you, and the fact is, their destruction is not asleep, the end of verse 3. But unfortunately, they take a lot of people with them. If you want the picture of the two parts that we study tonight and in a couple of weeks, Noah and Lot, there were a lot of people who were lost in both of those stories. A lot of people. And that was because of ungodliness. And the effects of it. And that's the unfortunate part. Ungodly sins are not kept just to one individual. They affect a lot of people. Especially when they get into the church. And that's where Peter's most concerned. But the Lord knows how to do what? Verse 9 says, To rescue the godly from temptation. And number 2, To keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Now, We talked about that part of it already last time together. We walked through the passage. We took out the personalities of Noah and Lot, and we talked about the the fact that God knows how to punish. And he punished through floods. He punished through the destruction of those cities. And he punished angels and all these things we talked about last time. This week, we're going to put the people back into the story. All right? Today, we're going to look especially at verse number 5. And then next time we get together, we're going to look at verse 6, 7, and 8 and deal with Lot. But tonight we're going to illustrate the life of Noah. Everybody knows about Noah, don't they? Noah, the flood, the animals, and all those other things. Now, I haven't been up to that part of Kentucky yet to see the the ark that sits up there. I'm eager to see it. Um, I was researching that one day, and I found a... That's not the only ark that's built right now. Did you know there was another one? Same size, the same thing, but sitting in water. It's over somewhere around uh, uh, Denmark or someplace over there in the waters. They have it in the water. And what's interesting, I was reading the, the paper on it. A guy says, let's build this thing, but let's put it in the water. And they did. And it's sitting in one of the rivers or somewhere along there. And, um, It's interesting because they had to write up an incident report because a military ship ran into it one day. And how exactly do you write that on paper? I ran into Noah's Ark. Uh, But uh, nevertheless, it's an interesting story. But it's there, and there were pictures on, on, uh, you know, the Internet. You could see it, and you could see the the town behind it going up the cliff, uh, the walls of the, and it's towering over all of those. And it's an amazing thing. So when we go and see Abby and Daniel, if we could ever sneak away, we're always busy over there. We'd like to take about a two-hour drive up and see the ark. That'd be kind of neat to see. Someday we will. 
But uh, I haven't seen it yet. Maybe some of you have thought about it. Maybe we'll do a field trip, and we'll just all go up there, and that'd be kind of fun too. But um, whatever. We talk about Noah. We talk about the boat. We talk about all that. I can't imagine what he lived through. The, the flooding is enormous. The fact that everybody he knew but his family died. And that's alone, that's got to be alarming. Then to have it opened up a year later, after all the water subsided, and to step out onto the ground again and start from scratch, really, there's nobody else there. No Walmarts or McDonald's or anything. It's all cleaned off. And it's like, wow, I don't want to trade places with him. That just seems huge. But as we go into this, we're going to learn some other things about Noah here. And especially this. I want to show you the contrast first, all right? Similarities and contrast between the two guys we're going to study. And it's almost going to come away as the application first before we get into the study. But I think it's helpful to see what it is. I'm not going to surprise you with what I'd like to show you. So I'm going to tell you right off, all right? There are similarities between Noah and Lot. Noah in verse number 5, Lot starting in verse number 7. All right. First similarity, both are called righteous men. All right. I know you probably scratch your head a little bit with Lot, don't you? So, uh, okay. Both are called righteous men. Second thing, both are caught in the middle of a very intense trial or tribulation or whatever you want to call it. They're both right in the middle of something pretty big, much bigger than themselves. Number three, both of them live in a society that's sinful as can be. We know that from Genesis 6, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But we also know it from Genesis 18, 19, and 20, which is the story of Lot. A very sinful society. Both societies were judged severely. How do you get more severe than what God did to either one of those? And both, let me get my words right here. It's harder in the evening for my eyes to focus. Um, Where is that? I got it. Okay, both were rescued with few survivors. There were relatives, weren't they, in both cases that were rescued with them. Both were rescued with few survivors. So that's the things they have in common. They were both called righteous men. They're both caught in the middle of this heavy trial. Both lived in societies very sinful. Both societies were destroyed severely. And both men were rescued with very few survivors. Okay. Now, what's the differences between Noah and Lot? Noah was a contrast to his society. He was a contrast to them. Because when it starts talking about Noah, especially in Genesis, it says, but Noah. And then it talks about him finding favor in the eyes of the Lord. He was a contrast to his society. Guess what Lot was? Chameleon. <laughs> That's even hard to spell on the paper. I couldn't use that one. So I put a continuation of his society. 
He didn't he didn't change his society in any way. As a matter of fact, we know after the fact he continued to do sinful things too. But he was more of a continuation of his society. Noah proclaimed righteousness. We see that in the text here. Lot tried to pres- um, persevere as righteous. And how good did he do? It says that he was exhausted by it. Day after day after day. He just tried to survive. Noah was a proclaimer of righteousness. Noah was preserved by God. Interesting set of words here. We look at this. Noah was preserved by God. Lot was rescued by God. Those two words alone stand out to me. There's a difference between them. One was preserved and one was rescued. And the fact is, the Lord knows how in both of these And when I think about this, I I think of the fact that if I brought this to an application to myself right now, to any of us, I would say, are we a contrast to our society or a continuation of it? These these are the two pictures we're going to look at here. So we're going to look at the contrast tonight with Noah, uh, starting with verse number 5. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Now, put it in its setting. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 6 for a minute. Keep your bookmark here. That's what bulletins are really good for. Okay, Genesis chapter 6. Now, the first couple of verses on Genesis chapter 6, we talk about uh, uh, what probably were the angels of, of that later became demons. We've got, or they were demons at this time. Anyway, there's a mess. It's hard to interpret all of verse number 1 through 4. We've talked about it a couple of times, but it might be the angel story that uh, Peter talks about. But verse number 5 is where we start. Verse number 5 says, And the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I call this verse the definition of depravity. There are some who argue whether or not the word total should be in front of that word. They argue that, well, man isn't all the way that bad. He's got a few things he can pull himself up by and things like that. That's not what Scripture teaches. It talks about us being sinful in our actions, yes, and in our words, yes, and in our thoughts, yes. And here it goes even deeper and says, and in the intents of the heart, yes, the conscience is affected, the will is infected, and people then will tell me, but don't you believe in a free will? I said, oh, yeah, but mine never does me any good. Tell, show me one verse ever that a free will does you something good. It always does what a, Isaiah 53 says. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we've led each one to its own way. That's, that's what a free will does. It goes its own way. And it always has itself in mind. I don't see any value in all those kind of things personally. And maybe you've got a better free will than I do. But when I read this verse in verse number 5, I say, that is what depravity looks like. 
just look at the words of it. And I'm going to read it to you actually uh, from a Hebrew rendering. And I've done this before, but some of you haven't heard this before. And if you hear it the way the Hebrew writer wrote it, Moses did, and it's translated straight from that, you'll see what I'm talking about. It says, Then Jehovah saw that the men of the earth were abundantly morally depraved, and the whole impulse of the inventions of his heart were only morally depraved the whole day. That's pretty strong stuff. That's like constant, all day long. That's all they think, and that's all they plan, and that's all they do. I always like to ask at the end of that, would you like that to be your neighbor? That's the society that was alive back then. I don't think it's changed much. But their intent, their imagination, really the root word is what they meditate upon, is only evil all day long. Their impulse, their tendency, what they want to do, what they will do, given the chance to do it, is only evil all day long. The whole imagination is set on only evil all day long. Only, only is key to that word. There's no other option with their thinking. It's not, well, I'm thinking bad things, but I think some good things too. There is nothing else in the ingredients. Only, alone, the meditations of their heart were alone in moral depravity. Nothing else occupied their thought that pretty sad sounding? That's terrible. It's no wonder why when the Lord looked at that and saw that, verse number 6 says he was sorry that he had made man on this earth. That's pretty bad. All right, now take that scene as really, really wicked as it can be and put Noah in the middle of it. All right? That's our context when we bring Noah to the story where it adds in in our passage of Jude. But Noah, actually, the, the Greek is kind of strong here. It says more like, but the eighth, Noah. And you say, the eighth? Well, we talk about him being the seventh one with seven others in verse number five, back in Second Peter, seven others. But the way it's emphasized, it says, the eighth, Noah. And you're going to say, well, what's that all about? I'll be back to that in a second. A righteous... Uh, of righteousness, a proclaimer, he preserved. God preserved him, kept watch over him, protected him. There's a great word here called pulasso, and we're going to talk about that too in just a minute. But let's talk about these other characteristics first. He's described as a proclaimer of righteousness. If, if you follow, maybe you'd like reading it once in a while Old Phillips translation. It's a very interesting translation. Um, some people said it's not a translation at all. They put it more in the idea of a, of a um, paraphrase, maybe, of sorts. But actually, Philip was trying his best to write it so his kids could understand it. If you go back into the understanding of what he was doing. And his translation was, or reference was, he was a solitary voice that cried out for righteousness. A solitary voice. But Noah, Josephus wrote this. This is interesting. You know Josephus, the old Jewish 
historian. We don't even know if he ever knew Christ or if he had any relationship uh, of something truly spiritual. But he was Jewish anyway. And Josephus says, But Noah, disgusted with their proceedings and afflicted with their evil counsels, exhorted them to repent in heart and life. That was his little commentary on on uh, Noah. Now, the fact is, when God looked down upon the earth and saw that kind of unrighteousness, he started to look around for somebody who was righteous, and he found Noah. It's a pretty sad indicator of a whole society that he could only find one. Who else was alive? Lamech, his father. Methuselah, his grandfather. They were both alive. Lamech would die a little bit after this, uh, before the flood, but after God called him. Uh, Methuselah would die the same year as the flood, which makes me scratch my head a little bit. He's not found by God to be righteous, although he was old. (laughs) People say, well, if you're that old, surely you've got to be righteous. Well, we can put him in the record book for the oldest man we've ever had a record of, but that doesn't mean he was a righteous man. God did not point him out. And he didn't point out Lamech. It was Noah. And Noah, uh, here's something, another interesting thing. If you do all the genealogy and work it all through, when God came to Noah and he says, I want you and your sons to build an ark. Noah didn't have sons then. They were born after that. While he was constructing the ark, Noah's sons were born. And that's rather fascinating when you look it through. In Hebrews, God told Noah and his three sons to go out and build. And it's like, but the sons weren't alive yet. <laughs> Noah had to take that by faith, too. He and his wife were right around 600 years of age, and they had no children. That's an interesting side thing. But that's trivia, and you could win a game with that one. But uh, let's talk about his preaching again. He was a proclaimer of righteousness. Now, it could mean one of two things. Either his lifestyle was a sermon, and some people do that, don't they? They live the kind of life they may never have been actually a a preacher of any kind whatsoever, but they live the kind of life in the midst of very ungodly things that they actually, by life, condemn those things. You know, Jesus didn't have to come to the world to condemn the world. Just his presence in it condemned the world. Because he was God. And he's in among sinful mankind. And people responded to that, didn't they? What was Peter's reaction in some occasions? Lord, get away from me. I'm such an ungodly man. Right? And those kind of scenes you, you see. Some just by their very existence, the way that they live, condemn sin and proclaim righteousness. And some actually speak it. Now, let's go back to Hebrews seven, or Hebrews eleven, since it does speak about Noah, and verse number seven. Hebrews chapter eleven, verse seven. By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. 
Again, by faith he stepped out in this to do what God had told him to do. He built an ark, and what an unusual thing that is. Unusual thing that is. They didn't have floods back then. They didn't, from what we understand, they didn't have rain back then. They had a mist that came up. The garden speaks about that. But it never says that it poured down rain. Maybe it did, but we don't have a record of that until the fountains were broken. We don't know exactly. I remember a story that uh, Chuck Swindoll told many years ago when he came to Moody. He said that uh, they were doing a series on Noah. And uh, he just wanted to get the dimensions in his head of the size of the ark. And he went out with one of those sport, you know, those wheel things you measure with, walk along and measure it. And he's out in his parking lot, and he's using chalk, and he's marking things, and he's going all the way along to get the length of it and the width of it and everything else. And one of the neighbors got really curious and came over and uh, was watching for a minute. And then he said, "Um, what are you doing? He says, I'm measuring. He says, what what are you measuring for an ark? He says, you going to build one of those here? (laughs) You can't do that in the parking lot. But just the the size of it, when you start measuring it out and thinking it through, God told him to build this thing, and he did it by faith. From all the details we could put together, it took him 120 years. That's a long time on the job, isn't it? A hundred and twenty years of building an ark. Like I said, his sons weren't even born when he started. But he did it by faith. So we know that he lived a lifestyle of faith. People must have noticed that about him. In Genesis 6, if we went back there, it says he found favor before God. He was a righteous man. He was what we call blameless. Now, that doesn't mean sinless. It just means he did what God said to do that was right. And I believe that even if somebody has sinned and they go to the Lord for forgiveness God's way, that's a blameless act too because they're still doing what God had told them to do. How to even deal with sin can be a blameless action. But Noah was known as a man who did it right. He did it right. And maybe everybody in town knew that, said, oh, This is Noah. He did what was right. But what was also cool about the Genesis passage is that it says he walked with God. And I love that phrase. He walked with God. None of us are excluded from that option, you know, to walk with God. He's called us to do that. But he was the eighth. Remember, I brought that word up a little bit ago. He was the eighth, according to the Greek and the way we look at Peter here, uh, it says, Noah, the eighth, or the eighth man, Noah. Um, That's interesting because this is what some people think that means. It meant that perhaps being the eighth, he was the last man in the boat. He took every moment he could to continue to preach until the last second. And then he got in. Seven others got in first, and then Noah came last. And maybe that was because he wanted to take advantage of every second. I don't know that, but I do know this, that if you talk about statistics, we have the most unsuccessful preacher ever. 120 years of ministry and only seven converts, and they're all family members. That'd be a tough ministry. (laughs) Nobody else got in the boat, did they? Nobody else. It was just Noah and his family. 
So I ask you a question. Are we willing to stand alone as Noah had to apparently? Spend the majority of our time being laughed at probably? Is such a world like that, are, are we any different? Are we entering into a world where righteousness is going to be commended by the people around us? They're going to say, hey, boy, there's a righteous guy. Isn't he great? I don't know, but our world is not heading the right direction when it comes to society. And we might be standing alone, too. And we might be laughed at. I liked what those kids sang this morning. Let them laugh. <laughs> I said, well, that's cool. Let them laugh. After all, we do have a future, don't we? The world does too, but theirs is not pleasant. The fact is, though, the Lord preserved Noah. I told you that word, fulasso, is the word used for God's preservation, to watch over him, to keep him, to protect him. I, I call it the Greek cowboy tool term. Lasso. I see that lasso in there. That picture. What is the purpose of that thing? That goes around something and holds it secure. The lasso that a cowboy might use uh, to keep something safe or keep it under, under you know, your watch or to protect it. And I think of this a little bit. And I, again, this is something that just seems to stand out to me: is that the Lord preserved. Noah. The word suggests, and, and it's not exactly what the Greek would say, but the Lord locked him in. Many times when we think about Noah in the ark, you know, the door being closed and stuff, who closed the door? God closed the door. Guess where the padlock had to have been? On the outside. God was keeping him in the ark. Most people say, wouldn't you want to stay in the ark? But that's God's preservation of this man Noah. He says, you get in, I'll keep you there. I'll preserve you there. I will hold you there. Every time we go up in an airplane, I have the same prayer. I have to confess this. I say, Lord, just put your hand under this thing and hold it up. And that's my prayer all the way through. And then when it gets shaky, I say, Lord, Lord, where are you? Hold that plane, okay? And he holds that's my vision of it, because when you're up that high, what is holding you up? Engineering, you know, all those those interesting things that some people know that I don't know. I just said, what's keeping me there? What's keeping Noah afloat? What's holding that boat from getting crushed by the waves, smashed against a mountain? Um, those kind of things. God was preserving him. God had a hold of him. Noah was inside, and there was no safer place on earth to be, honestly, than inside where the Lord had preserved him. In the midst of such terrible things, that's what God had done. It prevented him. What's interesting, if you look at his life prior to that, God prevented him from being contaminated by his world. He was different than his world. He was a contrast to his world. And God prevented him from being condemned with that world. He was able to stand out among the rest. And in the end, he was the only one standing with him and his family. God knows how. That's the point. God knows how to preserve. He knows how to preserve. And that's pretty intense. It's more than just surviving a flood. It's surviving a society like that. God knows how. 
He's no different today. Is he? Did he change on that point? Is he less capable today? Our whole theme is God is able, right? And this is a good picture of it. God is able. He's able to preserve us in a day like today. He's able to preserve us if it gets worse. He can do that. He can preserve us as being uncontaminated by the world. He can preserve us from being condemned with this world. He can save us and protect us that way. I like that about our Lord. There's nothing greater than He is. And that's that's just the picture that we have before us here. So no, the Lord knows how. In this case, He's holding a godly one from a trial. From a terrible tribulation, He's preserving him in the midst of it. The Lord knows how. He knows your plight. But also what's interesting is, He's got the knowledge to do it. He knows Now, I love what Spurgeon had to say on this, and this is out of his uh, uh, notes that go with this little passage, and it's interesting. There's about eight points here regarding to what the Lord knows. He knows how to let them suffer and yet to deliver them in the most complete and glorious manner. That's one. That's what he knows what to do with his people. He knows how to let them suffer and yet deliver them in the most complete and glorious manner. Number two, his knowledge answers better than theirs would do. Could you imagine? Noah, what do you say we do about this? I'm going to destroy the world by a flood. What do you think we should do? He didn't ask Noah, did he? And that's because Noah wouldn't have known what to do. He would have never thought first thing, hey, let's build a boat. Nobody built boats. Third thing, his knowledge of their case is perfect. Before, in, and after temptation, he knows their sorrows. Perfect understanding of what they're going through. Number four, he knows in every case how to deliver them. He knows how to deliver them. Number five, in every case there must therefore be a way of escape. Isn't there a promise like that in Scripture? 1 Corinthians 10.31 God knows that there is a way of escape. He designed it, by the way. That's His work. Number six, He knows the most profitable way of deliverance for them. There might be a dozen different ways God could do this. He might have said, Noah, I'm just going to suspend you up in the air for a year and then bring you back down. I don't know if you'd like that, but... That would be an interesting experience. Uh, He might say, no, no, I'm going to put you on Pluto. Just move you out there and set it up so you can breathe on Pluto. We'll start all over on that planet. He could have done that. And I know he could, but he devises the way. He knows what to do. And that's what I like about that. He knows the most profitable way of deliverance for them. Number seven, he knows the way which will be most glorifying to himself. That's always part of the equation, by the way, is what will bring God glory. Your life is that way. My life is that way, too. It's supposed to be one that brings Him glory, right? And even what God does or takes us through, He knows how to bring Himself glory through it. 
more times than not, we get sulky and we get upset and we say, this is a hard time and I don't like it and we complain all the way through. But whatever He has designed for us is going to bring Him glory. And that would change our perspective all the time if we would just think about it. Number eight. Is that what I'm up to? Yeah. His knowledge should cause them to trust Him with holy confidence and never to sin in order to escape. We don't have to come up with our own way to solve the problem. We have other examples of that. Abraham comes to mind right away. He says, well, this isn't working, Lord. Let me try a different way. Did that work? No, that was a mess. We have too many examples of that. But this is the reality that God says, just trust me. Just trust me. And I can get you through this, and you don't have to compromise your life to do it. You don't have to sin to do it. You just rest in what I'm going to do, and I'll bring you through. See, God has perfect knowledge. And that's what verse number 9 says. God has perfect knowledge. He knows how. He knows how. He didn't learn how. This is what's really cool about the word. In the perfect tense, it means he knows it and it's completed. He didn't learn how to rescue people. He didn't pull it up on Wikipedia or someplace and say, now how do I do this? God already knew. He already knows. And that's the beauty of this. He already perfectly knows. And guess what? He knows that for you and me too. Perfect knowledge of all these things. Even in the midst of a trial or temptation? Yeah. Verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation, even. And keep the unrighteous under punishment. He can take us through even the things that test us to the core. Generally, if you want to know what is a trial or what is a temptation, if it challenges your faith, then that's what it is. It's a challenge of your faith. It's a challenge of your integrity. Put it back in its context. Go back to Second Peter and think with me for a minute. You've got the context of a false teacher Peter is dealing with. And their destructive heresies. And the fact that they're in among church people. And verse number 1 of chapter 2 says... They're introducing destructive heresies. They're denying the master who bought them. They're bringing swift destruction upon themselves. The church is being chewed up by this, as Peter is writing. He says, this is terrible. Obviously, the church needed to be alert and be trained how to handle uh, a problem like this. But what happens when the church isn't ready or when it fails to stand up to a false teacher? And it gets consumed by these kind of things. What happens when this danger comes and the results are that the church wasn't ready? What's the likelihood that we're not going to be a contrast to society, but a continuation of it? That's why I like going back to the fact, but the Lord knows how. Even when we don't, and we fail and falter, and we stumble, and we say, Oh, I messed that up. I don't know what I'm going to do now. I've made a mess of things. The Lord knows how. And I still go back to that with my assurance that He knows it better than I do. And He's got a plan. And I could rest in that. 
Here's something interesting Warren Wearsby wrote years ago. Our present age is not only like the days of Noah, but it's also like the days of Lot. Many believers have abandoned their place of separation and are compromising with the world. The professing church has but a weak testimony to the world, and sinners do not really believe that judgment is coming. Society is full of immorality, especially the kind of sin for which Sodom was famous. It appears as though God is slumbering, unconcerned about the way rebellious sinners have polluted his world. But one day, the fire will fall, and then it will be too late. He wrote that quite a few years ago. I think it feels a little warmer in our society today. You know what global warming probably is? That could be God's wrath, just turning up the little dial a little bit more. I don't know. What's the remedy? What do we do? We read this. I set before you, are you a contrast or a continuation? And that you think about. I, I talked to you about Noah, a man who walked with God. And that we need to think about. But I'll just put it down in a paragraph is this. We need to get serious about godliness. We need to get serious about godliness. How can we ever expect a sinful world to believe the message of judgment if we don't take sin seriously? If we don't live separately? In Romans chapter 6, we are told that we're not to let sin reign in our mortal bodies, right? That we obey its lust. And we don't go on presenting the members of our body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But we are told to present ourselves to God as those alive. And we are, aren't we, in Christ? Alive. Alive from the dead and our members as instruments of righteousness to God. That's what we're called to do in an ungodly world. And you may stand out like Noah and be the only one that God sees in the whole horizon of people walking in your circle. And I say, you're the one. You're the one. I could preserve you in this. I could take you through this. Trust me. The Lord knows how. Now, when we get back, we're going to talk about Lot's story, and then we're going to scratch our head a lot and say, really? Because that's a continuation of society, and it's not pretty. But you know what? The Lord knows how there, too. So we'll see that. Heavenly Father, there's a lot in this text for us to learn and glean from. But we do stop and say, thank you, Lord, for giving us an example in the man Noah. A man who was righteous, and you saw him. One who walked by faith and walked with you. And that's what your scripture testifies of. He did what you told him to do. And you preserved him just like you promised. And so we stop and say, thank you, Lord, for such an example as him to help us understand things here tonight that we're talking about. May we not go home or spend this week in any way but as a contrast to the wicked world around us. May we live in such a way that even our righteous behavior stands up in the midst of an ungodly world. And maybe, Lord, we might say some words that go with it that would also... Help people understand their need for Christ now as Savior before they meet Him as their judge. We thank you so much for saving us.
And even tonight, we got another glimpse of how great a salvation that really is, that you should call us to yourself and protect us in this way. And you're going to take us through the promises there that someday we're going to stand with you in a new world that is just bathed in righteousness. What a world that will be. Until then, Lord, help us to walk faithful with you, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.